Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter. We'll read our Scripture text there, and it's good to see you this morning. We're going to do an unusual message this morning, but one that I think you'll, you'll uh, enjoy uh, in your Bible study and background to kind of give you understanding uh, for why Dan and I teach the way we do and make specific applications to the day and age and culture in which we live. A quick survey of Scripture. All right, let's, uh, let's just begin in verse, oh my goodness, uh, let's, let's, begin, uh, let's begin at the tail end of, of, of verse 7, chapter 1, 1 Peter. The appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom though you, now you don't see Him, because He's already in heaven, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable, unspeakable joy and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and glory that should follow. So we'll use that as our scripture text to launch into this uh, sermon entitled 66 Books in 45 Minutes. Well, of course, God is God. It's all about Him. It's all about bringing glory to Him. And all history is His story as He is dispensing His administration and working out through human history a story which begins with the first Adam and His bride living in God's presence in a perfect creation. And it ends with the second Adam and His bride living in God's presence in a perfect creation. The difference between the first Eden and the last is that Adam didn't choose to be there, and neither did Eve. In the last Eden, all who have chosen to trust in the God of creation and serve Him, from Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, through Noah, who was one of the only eight survivors of the flood, through Abraham, through Jeremiah, through John the Baptist, through the apostles, through this church age, through the very last believer who rejects the mark of the beast during the tribulation, this group which makes up the, the group in John 5 that Jesus referenced as the resurrection of the just, as opposed to the resurrection of the damned, the justified of all ages will ultimately be with God in glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in between, we see God's work unfolding His plan and dispensing His administration through a progressive revelation from God to man and through man. Now, two things to remember as we go. All Scripture is for us, but not all of it is given to us. For example, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's a lot we can learn from the uh, account of Adam uh, and the garden. However, we aren't commanded to stand naked in the backyard and not eat from a particular tree. So there are some applications that we can derive from this, but the command, don't eat of the tree, was not specifically given to us. And second thing is that context not only matters, but context is key. So with that background, let's begin our journey. Now, it may seem slow over the first five minutes, but recognize that the first 12 chapters cover 4,000 years of human history, so it'll speed up quickly. First of all, we know where it begins. Barashit bara Elohim ha-hashem ha-aretz. In the beginning, God created time, space, and matter. And why did He create it? All for His glory. God created man. God created man different than animal life. We had the ability to reason, to produce, to work, to love, to worship. 
And God's goal through all of this is, I will be your God and you will be my people. But God didn't create us as robots. Robots can't choose. Robots can't make uh, uh, judgments. Robots can't love. And let's face it, love is a choice. And trust is a choice. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Well, God had overwhelmingly demonstrated his love toward Adam, giving him a perfect wife and a perfect garden, literally walking with him daily. It was utopia. But Adam disobeyed, and sin entered into the world. And as a result of sin in the world also came pain and suffering now within God's perfect creation. Well, Adam's sin ended this first dispensation where man was free to choose, but man was born in a state of innocence. But before leaving the garden, God preached that first salvation message recorded in Genesis 3.15. You remember the account. Adam and Eve both recognized their sin. They recognized their nakedness. So they attempted to cover their nakedness by sewing together aprons of fig leaves. But that was insufficient. Man's work was not good enough. The father made a, 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 a PowerPoint illustration to use for Adam and Eve. He slew, I believe, a couple of lambs. Innocent blood had to be shed in order to cover their sin. So these lambs died on behalf of their behavior to cover their sin. And then God preached a message along with it in Genesis 3.15. He said, one day the seed of the woman, your seed, Eve, one day your seed, not Adam's, that's a reference to the virgin birth, will crush the head of the seed uh, of the serpent. So, beginning with the expulsion and ending with the flood, some 1,500 years, man was commanded to do good. But the law hadn't been written yet. So how would man know if he's doing good? Well, Romans 2 tells us that we have the law literally written within our hearts in our own consciousness. And man knew what was good and evil. Perhaps not all the specifics, but man certainly knew enough to know that he was chosen to do wrong. And man grew very wicked, the Bible says, continually. In fact, every action and thought of his heart was evil. And God warned them of coming judgment. For some 120 years, Noah had the responsibility of preaching uh, repentance while he was building the ark. And grace was offered to the entire world at that point of time in spite of their sin. And they were offered salvation from the judgment. All they had to do was get inside the ark. However, man rejected with the exception of eight. Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives as the world was destroyed in the flood. Well, Understand that the purpose of any level of government, whether it be self-government, family government, civil government, church government, is to maintain order and to restrain evil. That's what our good friend uh, uh, Noah Webster said in the definition of government. It is control. It is restraint. It is to suppress that which was evil. And in the first three chapters of Genesis, we see God had already established the principle of self-government, and He'd already established the principle of uh, family government. However, as Noah left the ark, man was given the responsibility to judge other men when they broke the law. We have the establishment of civil government, even to the point where a murderer, if convicted beyond doubt, would give their own life as a consequence of their sin. 
Now, as they were leaving the ark, they were commanded to scatter and fill the earth. But for the next 150 years, they largely disobeyed. Most of them, now numbering into the tens of thousands, congregated in the cities in the plain of Shinar. And the first tyrant saw an opportunity to control and rule over the people. This man whom history calls biblically and extra-biblically named Nimrod attempted to centralize power and to centralize the government of man and to establish a single godless global tyranny. Well, how did God respond? Well, God created the nations by dividing their tongues into multiple languages and forced their scattering and dividing and decentralizing civil government. One thing you hear me and Dan talk about, and we need to remember, every time you consolidate power, it always works out poorly. Why is that? Because man is sinful. We can't be trusted with too much power or it will go to our heads and we will misuse it. How do you know, Pastor? Well, we've got 6,000 years of history that we can point to as an example. But over the next 500 years, man again filled the earth. And again, the world became corrupt and worshiped false gods. But instead of judgment, God this time reached into the heart of paganism into a city called Ur in the Chaldees and called a man named Avram and said, you follow me and I will make a great nation of you and I will bless the world through you. As a matter of fact, not only will Israel be a blessing, but Israel will bless the world with the Messiah. And Avram was to live in Canaan and be the recipient of God's blessings. But instead, he wound up, he not just him, but he and his descendants continually fled into Egypt when things got tough. And of course, you know the story as Joseph was sold into slavery and then Jacob and the rest of the family moved down there. Eventually, they did all move to Egypt and eventually they became slaves. Now, when Israel had grown from that family of 70, with Jacob and his sons and their wives and Joshua, excuse me, and Joseph and his wife and sons, a total of 70 going in. Some 400 years later, they had grown to being in excess of a million. And of course, you know the story in Exodus. They were now an enslaved people. But God was not just maturing and toughening his nation of Israel during these four centuries. The Bible says in Genesis 15 that the iniquity of the Amorites, those that inhabited Canaan, was not yet full. You know, ladies and gentlemen, God is patient with us. God would much prefer repentance rather than judgment. And God puts up with a lot from us. But eventually, there comes to a point where God says, I've had it up to here. It's now time to act. So for four centuries, God had dealt with the Canaanites. And for four centuries, they had continued to be uh, disobedient. And then, at this point, God chose and sent this 80-year-old man named Moses to bring his chosen nation out of bondage. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And it was here that God gave them the law. Now let's pause for a moment and just overview some of the things we've covered. God told Adam about the promised Redeemer. And then through time, God fine-tuned the focus and revealed more information about this promised Redeemer's identity. We learned very quickly that he would come through the lineage of Noah. We learned that he would come through the lineage of Shem. We learned that he would come through the lineage of Abraham. We learned that he would come through the lineage of Isaac and through the lineage of Jacob and through the lineage of David. And then finally we're told that he would come through the lineage, excuse me, of Judah. And then finally we're told that he would come through the lineage of David. Now, Israel was to be his people, and he promised to be their God. And through Israel, 
God was going to reach the world as the temple was to be the house of prayer for all nations. Now, consider as we go throughout this period of time from the first 400 years when they went into the promised land and Israel actually functioned as a constitutional republic to the time in 1 Samuel when they asked for a king and centralized government to be just like the other nations to the division of the kingdom after Solomon's reign. There were periods of righteousness, but more often they disobeyed God. And it was through this period of time, these, this thousand years, basically from the time of Judges through actually all the way through Nehemiah did God send the prophets. You know, we, we know them as Elisha and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah. All of these men sent for the same reason to call God's people back to get on the right track. But they didn't. Israel broke the law, which resulted in God driving them out of the promised land. They've been driven out twice, just as the Scripture says. And the Scripture says that after they return the second time is when the Messiah will show up. But look at this from their perspective. They had been driven out of the land and are now currently out of the land until the nation of Israel's rebirth in 1948. The promised king of the seed of David was coming. They knew he was coming. They still today, many Orthodox Jews are looking for the return of the Messiah. Some, after World War II and the Holocaust, have given up. Nevertheless, Orthodox Judaism is still looking for the return of their king. But when? And how would they recognize him? Well, that was the question that was being asked 2,000 years ago. And there were two passages of Scripture which seemed to conflict and cause confusion. One, Zechariah 9.9 9 said, Oh, you'll recognize your King the Messiah because He's going to humbly come bringing salvation, riding over the Mount of Olives on a donkey's colt. But then also five chapters later in Zechariah 14 says this, Oh, here's how you'll recognize your King. He's going to show up leading an army, riding a white horse, coming in power and glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, that seems a little bit confusing. Is it one way or is it the other? Some Jews surmise there must be two Messiahs. Messiah of the lineage of Joseph who went into Egypt as a suffering servant and Messiah the king of the lineage of David. Well, Jesus explained the issue before it became an issue. In his very first message back in the synagogue he grew up in in Nazareth, he was asked to share one day. And by the way, at this point, it was about the first year of his ministry. He was a controversial figure. The whole country was talking about him at this point in time. And Jesus explained the difference by pointing to a clear messianic prophecy that had two goals. And he stopped right in the middle of it, very clearly saying that his first trip was to bring salvation. His next time will be preceded with judgment and then the establishment of the kingdom. But the Bible tells us that the law and the prophets lasted until John the Baptist, who announced the coming of the Messiah. As I said a little while ago, ladies and gentlemen, it's all about Jesus. Now, Jesus, we know, fulfilled the law. He fulfilled our obligation as sinners on the law. He paid that debt for us. He fulfilled the prophecies pertaining to Messiah from the law and the prophets. But He also filled full the gaps, 
those things that had been twisted or misused over time through tradition or that were misunderstood. For example, like the difference between Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 14.1. But he absolutely was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And he was rejected as Isaiah 53 prophesied he would be. He was killed as Daniel 9.26, Isaiah 53 said he would be. He was crucified, in fact, as Psalm 22 prophesied specifically he would be. And he rose again as Psalm 16 and the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 also had foretold. He was, in fact, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. And it was his sacrifice that resulted in the veil of the temple being rent from top to bottom. And our access to God has been now accomplished. Understand what this meant. Up until this point, only this earthly high priest of the lineage of David could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he only did it once a year with the proper blood sacrifice. Year after year after year after year, doing the same thing again and again. Why was that? Because it obviously wasn't sufficient. Man went to God through this earthly high priest and he had to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because Paul tells us in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats do not take away the sins of man. But they were done by faith looking to this one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, whose offering would sufficiently take away the sins of man. And when Jesus hung on the cross and said, It is finished, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, the Scripture very clearly tells us that the veil was rent, that veil of separation. God ripped it. By the way, uh, the, the uh, history says that it was about four inches thick. That was some heavy-duty uh, piece of fabric. And it was ripped in half from top to bottom. We no longer need a high priest. We can at any point with boldness and confidence approach the throne room of mercy and grace through our eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus clearly said that he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. Understand this. Contrary to what many uh, popular Bible teachers across America seem to be teaching. As they say, we just need to disconnect from the Old Testament. Or that doesn't affect us at all anymore. There was never a point where God said, oops, that was a mistake. There was never a point where God said, boy, I've really made a mess out of things now uh, here in the Old Testament. I better stop and change course and try a different strategy here in the New Testament. God has and is fulfilling His promises. Now, a lot of what has been given in the Old Testament still applies directly to us. I'm asked frequently, does the law still apply to us? Well, let me say this. Some of it does, and some of it doesn't. And here's what I mean. The law, the first five books from which, on which everything else is built, everything is built on top of that. It's basically that initial foundation. We see the books of prophecy stacked on top and not disagreeing, but giving more color. We see the books of poetry stacked on top and giving more color. And then on top of everything in the Old Testament, you've got the Gospels. You've got the introduction of the church. And then you've got the epistles standing on top of this. So none of it contradicts. It all just continues to progressively pour out from the same spigot as God is progressively revealing Himself in greater detail to us. Now, the law was the constitution for this nation of Israel. And it consisted of three parts. One was simply called the law. That's God's value system. That's transcendent. His morality doesn't change. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. 
Do not bear false witness. Do not commit adultery. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That never changes. Second part was what was called the judgments. Well, the judgments actually were dealing with civil law in the nation of Israel. How do you govern? They were a people. They were a nation. And there's a lot of good information in there from which we have derived many of our laws that we have here in the United States of America. But some of it's not really necessary for us. You know, here's one. One of the laws that they were given to protect their well-being was that if you have an offering, you can eat it that day, if it's a meat offering. If there's leftovers, you can have it the second day even. But if there's any leftover until the third day, then don't eat it. Throw it away. Burn it. And why do you think that was given? Was it because it all of a sudden becomes, makes us unholy on the third day? No, but if you let meat sit there that's unrefrigerated, it will make you sick on the third day. And then it's amazing, the laws of cleanliness. You know what? No other people were told to wash their hands before they ate. How many of you wash your hands before you eat? Don't raise your hands. You might embarrass. Somebody might be embarrassed. But boy, does that make us more spiritual or more clean in the presence of God? No, but it's good hygiene. As God was the God of His people, concerned about their health and well-being, He gave them some good counsel. One I like to always reference is the having a banister on the roof of your house. Well, how many of you have banisters on the roofs of your house? Well, what? Does that make us a bunch of heathen? Well, no. But in Oklahoma, we have 6 and 12 or 8 and 12 pitches. We have shingle roofs. In Israel, they had flat roofs, and the top of the roof served as a patio. They would go up on the patio in the cool of the evening, in the cool of the morning, and work at night because they didn't have air conditioning. They enjoyed the breeze. Well, what's a good idea if you're up 12, 14 feet off the ground? It's good to have a rail around the outside. So that was part of the law for Israel. Did that make them more holy? No, but it made sure that they didn't get to heaven any earlier than they were supposed to go. It was good safety. So this part of the law makes good sense. Much of it we can use, but we are not bound by it. Now then you have what's called the statutes. This was the statutory law, the section that dealt with the worship of Israel, the Aaronic priesthood, the sacrificial system. As I noted a moment ago, when Jesus bowed His head and gave up His spirit and said, It is finished, the veil of the temple was rent in half from top to bottom. This part has been fulfilled. We no longer need to offer a bullock on the Day of Atonement or a lamb in the morning or a lamb in the evening. We can continually look to the Lamb of God which was given to pay our sin debt some 2,000 years ago. So the law is the law. Some of it does still apply to us. Some of it is good sense and we should listen to it. But some of it has been completely fulfilled by Jesus who is our heavenly high priest, the God-man Christ Jesus our eternal king and high priest. Now, as the Old Testament canon closed, the Jews were looking to the future Messiah. The Jews knew about the 70th week of Daniel that was still to come. But when? The Jews knew about all the promises, specifically, oh, Jeremiah, Micah, Isaiah, goes into great, Ezekiel, great detail about what they call the age of the Messiah, a literal kingdom on earth, according to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, where the seed of David shall rule and reign from his temple in Jerusalem. At that point in time, there will be war no more. Uh, The lion and lamb will lay down together and dine together. Man will beat his swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Do I believe that that literally is going to happen? Absolutely I do. 
It doesn't make sense for that just to be a figure of speech when you look at it in comparison with everything that happened up to this point in time. So we know this is coming. This is what they were looking for. And as you've heard me say before, the church age is hidden in the Old Testament. So they're expectantly looking for the arrival of their Messiah. But again, they were confused by the diverse prophecies of Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 14. Well, we know what they didn't. In between those two arrivals of the Messiah is this mystery period in which we now live that's called the age of the church. Now, let's look at Scripture, its applicability, and the entire outline. Malachi ends, the close of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, Malachi ends with the promise that the next thing you're going to, basically with an ellipsis, a dot, 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 to be continued. And the next thing you're going to see, according to Malachi 2, 3, and 4, is the forerunner to the coming of Messiah. You're going to see a man uh, uh, comes in the spirit and power uh, of Elijah. Now, on top of this, after this promise and the expectation, the waiting. The first thing we see in the Gospels is this John the Baptist and the introduction of Jesus of Nazareth. Now understand, the Gospels stand as eyewitnesses. They are apologetics for all of those that weren't around to see with their own eyes 2,000 years ago. We see four prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. We see in Jeremiah 23, he was going to be the king of the Jews and the world. In Zechariah 3, he was going to be a suffering servant. In Zechariah 6, he was going to be a human being. And in Isaiah 4, the Messiah would in fact be divine. So the four Gospels, Matthew, the king, Mark, the servant, Luke, his humanity, and John, his divinity, answer those four prophecies. So those are apologetic works proving that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And then the empty tomb removes all doubt. He is the Lord. The tomb is empty. Now, you are either with Him or you against Him. There is no neutrality. Now, after seeing the empty tomb, 50 days later at Pentecost, when all the Jews from all over the Gentile world were required by their Jewish law to come back to Jerusalem. And it was that point that the, they heard the shofar from heaven. They saw the tongues of fire, an indication that the Holy Spirit no longer resided over the Holy of Holies, but indwelled each and every individual. As they heard the sermon of Peter and the others, every one of them hearing it in their own language, the wonderful works of God, we know that 3,000 accepted Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and were baptized publicly. That was significant. We know that a couple of days later there was another 5,000. We know that the church continued to grow. But what did they do? They were staying there in Jerusalem, waiting for the Messiah to come back. And they were right. They were expecting Him even at that point in time. However, what did the Great Commission say? The Great Commission said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost extent of the world. And they weren't doing that. So they were warned to not have any false illusions. Jesus said on His last night on earth, the world hated me. I've got bad news for you. It's going to hate you as well. Uh, but don't worry, I've overcome the world and I will be with you always wherever you go. 
So as they were dispersed out of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8, the Jews finally did what God told them in the Great Commission, and they took the good news of the King of Kings, the Messiah of Israel, to all the world, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. Whosoever trusts in the name of the Lord shall be spiritually born into this family of God. Now, understand this. The epistles were very practical letters of instruction added to the eternal Word of God, which already existed. The Bible for the first church for two decades was the Tanakh. It didn't change at the crucifixion, didn't change at the resurrection. The Bible of the church for the first 20, 25 years, the only Bible they had was the Tanakh, the 24 books in, in Hebrew, 39 books, but the same Word. And they were to teach that Bible, and they did teach that Bible. That was God's Word. But there were questions that now arose, and they were looking for answers. So the apostles would write letters since they couldn't send an email or text or make a cell phone call. They would write letters and send them to those specific churches addressing those specific questions. For example, the big question of the day was up until now, for 2,000 years, if a Gentile wanted to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Gentile had to become a Jew. Even going through circumcision, kosher laws, and everything. Well, that was now the question. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? As a matter of fact, there was several issues there. In Galatia, you had all these Gentiles that were trying to become Jews. They were just trying to put themselves back under the law. So we see that Acts chapter 15, the letter to the Galatians, addresses those issues specifically. Do they need to keep kosher? Do they need to keep holy days? Do they need to get circumcised in order to please God? Of course, the answer was no. Is God done with Israel? In the book of Romans, you see uh, a community in Rome that had, uh, the, the emperor had kicked the Jews out for something like 11 years. And all of those synagogues slash churches had been without a Jew for over a decade. And you know how media can get. They paint the enemy enough times they can, they can identify a people as, as, as a subhuman group of people. When the Jews finally came back to Rome, they weren't well received in their churches. There was discrimination. There was intolerance. They weren't sensitive to the Jews who still felt obligated to keep kosher and certain other things that God had given to the Jews. Well, Paul wrote Romans 9, 10, 11, also Acts 15, dealing with that specific issue. Is God done with Israel? No, not at all. Oh, by the way, as we've got these new churches and they're coming out of, there's a separation between Orthodox Judaism because the Orthodox Jews have rejected uh, their Messiah, Jesus. Well, Well, how should we have order in the churches? How is the church leadership supposed to be organized? And what are the offices? Well, we have the pastoral epistles written to Timothy and to Titus dealing with those offices of pastor and deacon and what their responsibility is. Hey, what about sin in the church? We've got some carryings on in the church. These people aren't living like Christians. There's no calling them to repentance. What about, what should we do with that? Well, Paul writes the letter to the church in Corinth, how to handle church discipline properly. And if somebody just continues to go off into sin, they can't fellowship with the church. But we want to work with them. The goal is repentance and restoration. What about the idea of, of Gnosticism? What about the compartmentalization of our faith, which most of the churches in America practice today? 
When a church says, oh, we can't talk about that subject in church, that means that they have compartmentalized their lives into some things are spiritual and some things are secular. According to the Bible, whatever you do, you are to do to glorify God. So if you're doing it, you should be looking for God's instruction on how you're to do it. If you, if you have questions about what right and wrong is, you're going to be looking to the Word of God to establish what right and wrong is. Well, that was dealt with, this was dealt with aggressively in, in John's first epistle, 1 John. What about the rapture? A lot of our people are dying, Paul, and, and the rapture hadn't come first. And then all of a sudden there's this letter that we've missed it. We're actually in the tribulation. Well, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians dealing with those specific questions. Well, what about Jewish Christians having to live in a pagan world. What's it like to, to be a Jew and no longer being in Israel, now living in, in, in Europe somewhere and being oppressed by paganism and having people that don't like you? How now shall you live? Well, First Peter deals with that specifically. How you're to live in this world, how believers are to live in, a, in an unbelieving world. We see James addresses much of the same thing. But the point is, is this, is that these letters were very practical letters of instruction for how now we shall live as children of God in this particular world. In fact, most of the epistles just have maybe 10% theology. 10% something that's super spiritual application or addressing a spiritual trivial, and they're about 90% practical, real life instruction as to how now shall we live. By the way, you know what the greatest sin addressed in the church is? It's not smoking, it's not drinking, it's gossip and backbiting in every letter, in every letter to every church, whether it be Peter, Paul, James, you name it, you people behave. Quit acting like children. Don't tell stories. Don't spread gossip. Don't try to do character assassination. You be forgiving. You love one another as Jesus loved you just the same. Now, here we get through these letters. We get almost to the century mark. And the last living apostle living on the Isle of Patmos wraps it all up. He brings it all in to a conclusion, a nice, tidy ending. All of those promises going all the way back to, to Eve in Genesis 3, 15, uh, about the promised uh, seed crushing the head of the seed of serpent. All the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Israel. Hey, that coming 70th week of Daniel that Daniel outlines, that Jesus references in Matthew 24. Well, John goes into the specific details. By the way, who is he writing this to? The church. It's addressed to seven specific churches that I am absolutely convinced in German, excuse me, Jewish hermeneutics that they were seven literal churches alive in that day that needed this particular letter. But together, those seven churches, and again, I emphasize, five of them aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. You would think if God was writing a letter of importance to the church that He had written that included Antioch or Jerusalem or Rome or one of the significant churches, five of these seven aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Why were those seven chosen? Because those seven churches laid out in that particular order. If they'd been reversed at all, this wouldn't work. But those seven churches give us a picture of the entirety of this age in which we live. The progress and the regress of the church age. By the way, seven means completeness. God's number of completion. Seven notes in a scale, seven days in a, in a week, seven colors in a rainbow. Seven churches make up the entirety of this church age. And to this, John wraps it all up. By the way, you notice to where at the end of the Old Testament, it gives an ellipsis saying to be continued. At the end of Revelation, it says, don't add to or take away any things that are written in this book. 
So understand, the God's communication to us as far as Scripture is complete. Now, the Bible is a spiritual book. It is the Word of God from a spiritual being given to His creation. It tells us who is God. It tells us how we please God. But the Bible is also a very practical book given to man after becoming children of God how now shall we live? You can really summarize it in what I just said easily. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and oomph. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as Christians, God didn't just tell us how to get to heaven. But He told us how to live for Him now on this earth. Now, technically, we are still in the book of Acts. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. And in this church age, the Holy Spirit is still actively at work. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? In man. So right now, as the Holy Spirit is still at work, Paul has now been executed, but we continue on down. We are now about in in Acts chapter 17,483,818. And this particular chapter is dealing with that body of believers living out their faith, waiting for the rapture, knowing that the tribulation and Armageddon is coming, the millennial reign is coming, and one day we will rule and reign with the Lord. Right now we are busy living out our faith as the church called Fairview Baptist in Edmond, Oklahoma. But let me say this, the Bible is just as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. However, in our day, the question is not about circumcision. That has long been resolved. That was the question of the hour in the first century. That has long been resolved. What are some of the issues that we deal with today that our churches are silent about and the body of Christ is looking for leadership and looking for answers? What about racism? What's the Bible say about racism? Well, the Bible says we're all one race. You go back far enough, we all come from Adam and Eve. We all, um, in fact, and then it elaborates that there is no more Jew or Gentile, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the Bible says a lot about racism. We've got to be addressing issues like that, and we do. It's one of the reasons we started to get such... Uh, 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 an influx of people over the course of the last year. We were one of the few churches that was dealing with the Black Lives Matter stuff and why it was out there and what was true and what wasn't true. We were one of the few that were dealing with, oh, America is a systematically enslaved uh, uh, racist nation. We were dealing with those issues. Hey, we're not, right now we don't care. Right now we have settled the issue of circumcision. How many of you had that question asked over the last week? Anybody been asked, well, I know, I understand you're a Christian. Well, are you circumcised? Well, let me see. No, No, that's no longer an issue. But there are communities being burnt. There are people calling to do away with the police. Well, how are we supposed to address that? Pastor, why don't you tell us? We are. And we hope that more and more churches will either tune in and listen because the body of Christ needs some actual scriptural leadership in these areas. And we are doing our best to establish more pastors that get it, that are able to apply the Bible to every facet of life. What about social justice? 
Ladies and gentlemen, there's no such thing as social justice. There's just justice in the Bible. And we have unalienable rights given by God because we are human beings created in God's image. Everyone is to be equal in that point. Now, we don't have equal outcomes. How many of you played five years professionally in football? Okay, how many of you have medical degrees? How come I don't have a medical degree? Well, because God, or people like Carol did the work and they were rewarded for their work and he's now a doctor. I did my work, was rewarded for my work, and now people like Terrell have a job trying to keep me put together. <laughs> so we all have rights as being creation of God, but we don't have guaranteed equal outcomes. So there, the idea of group justice is Marxism. One group jealous of the other group, fighting each other, and eventually it's going to become a revolution, and then there's going to be an opportunity to rebuild a new uh, utopian socialist system as you have destroyed the host nation. What about Marxism? Well, what does the Bible have to say about the family? What does the Bible have to say about private property? What does the Bible have to say about economics? I heard Steve a minute ago, what about abortion? Boy, that's a big deal in our day and age. What does the Bible have to say about children and God's intent for children? And what happened to people that would kill innocent children, babies, in the Old Testament? Yeah, God judged them and judged them fiercely. Hey, what about the LGBT issue? You know, homosexuality goes all the way back. It's, it was recorded all the way back in the time when, of the flood of Noah. We see what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God's message consistently about sexuality, how God created us as sexual beings, but it's to be held sacred within the holiness of one man in a covenant marriage with one wife. That's God's design. By the way, how many genders are there? 57? I don't know what the count is today. Changes daily, does it not? We've never been confused up until the last year, and quite frankly, I'm still not confused. The Bible tells us that God created male and female of all species. Biology and science and common sense and obvious vision tells you that there's two, two sexes, two, two sexes, two genders. That's it. By the way, what does it say? Men don't have uteruses. Have you heard that? Men, now, men can have a uterus. No, you can't. That's nonsense. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Our responsibility is to make our minds conform to the truth. What's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about? We're not supposed to try to manipulate and change the truth to make it conform to what we think in our minds. What about the push for climate change? Folks, we're going to be going over this in the future. We should find this. This is coming next as COVID, as the hoax of COVID. By the way, it's about 5% real virus. It is a real virus. Something to deal with. Hey, keep your immune system up. As soon as you have symptoms, start treating it aggressively with drugs we know that work. After this dies down, the next thing you're going to hear hammered, oh, we've got to do something about climate change. We've got to get that Paris Accord coming back up. Folks, we are not going to destroy the planet. Amen. Let me tell you, how do I know that? Because the Bible tells me who is going to destroy this planet. Amen. One of these days, God's going to destroy it in fire. By the way, there is going to be some very severe pestilences and a loss of, of uh, greenery during the tribulation period. The Bible talks about that, but it's not our SUVs and airplanes that are going to cause it now. What about global government? Well, God told us what his feeling of that was all the way back in Genesis. God se separated the powers. God divided us into nations because nations can check the evil in other nations. 
Well, where would you look for what God's design is for proper civil government? Would you look in the book of John? No, unless you're an idiot. If I was going to look for instruction on civil government, I might look to Exodus and Deuteronomy, which is what our founding fathers did when God was establishing His civil government on earth and see what He was trying to get accomplished. What about resistance to wicked laws? Just because the government says something, are we supposed to yield to it? No. We see that consistently throughout the Bible, from the Hebrew midwives that defied Pharaoh when he said, throw those male Jewish babies in the river, to Daniel when he refused to change his prayer life, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to obey the law and bow down to the golden image of, of Nebuchadnezzar in the Shinar plain. Hey, if there is an unjust law, we aren't obligated to follow an unjust immoral law. As a matter of fact, we're told not to. And by the way, the federal government can't do whatever it wants to do. That's called a tyranny. The 13 states created a limited general government and delegated, as Jefferson said, few and defined powers. Now, if they do something that's within their proper authority, then it is our responsibility to obey. But if they sit here and say, hey, we're going to require you to have a vaccine passport, we ought to tell them to go to Hades. What about how to live as Christians in a pagan world? We have that answered. Folks, and understand this. The Bible is divine. It's protected from hostile jamming. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Turn to the, to the chapter on baptism. Turn to the chapter on heaven. Okay. Uh, turn to the chapter on marriage. God's truths aren't just in one chapter where if you rip that chapter out, then you can eliminate and change God's truth. God's truths are consistent and they are given here a little, there a little, consistently throughout the pages of Scripture. So if you want to look at what God has to say about heaven, you start here and you work your way through and you find nuggets here, nuggets there, nuggets here. Here's Paul when he was caught up into paradise. Here's Jesus preaching in John 14. You see, little, you see a little glimpse of, of the new Jerusalem over in Revelation 21 22 and you can put it all together and you can get a fairly uh, broad snapshot. What does the Bible say about marriage? We can look over here at Ephesians chapter 5. We can go over here in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We can look over here and see man's responsibilities and women's responsibilities in 1 Peter 3. We can go back over here and see what God says about the woman, Proverbs 31. Hey, you go through the Scripture and you can put it all together. So it, it's, it's impossible to compromise God's truth because God's truth is spread consistently throughout all 66 books. Now... Dan and I understand that the Bible speaks to us today. I'm amazed at how many preachers teach the Bible as if it was a book of anecdotal tales and that God is not concerned about our world, just us getting to heaven, and they ignore the realities of living in this world. Folks, we are to contend with the culture. We are supposed to stand against that which was evil. What was one of the things that Jesus said in his model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount? Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. 
So these pastors say, oh, that's something that's of the world. We can't talk about that. We only talk about spiritual things. Everything we do as Christians is a spiritual thing. Every lesson in the Bible was to man presenting God's truth and direction in the midst of specific real-life crises and real-life problems, real-life issues. And God dealt with them properly, scripturally, perfectly. We have all that treasure to draw from to deal with our real-life issues, real-life problems, real-life crisis. The Bible is just as relevant to us today as it ever was. Just as relevant to us today as it was when Moses was leading the Israelites. When, when Samuel was judging uh, Israel. When David was king. When, when Peter was running around with this carpenter from Nazareth. When Paul was taking the gospel to Europe and Asia. It is just as relevant and applicable for us today as it was then. Only it's not dealing with the church of Antioch today or the church of Thessalonica today. It's for the church called Fairview Baptist and the church called Henderson Hills Baptist and the church called Faith Bible. It's for the church today. Now we've dropped the ball. 70% of Americans still identify as Christians. Folks, if you've ever been to a country that's 70% Muslim, you know it. 70% of America identifies as Christians, and we're having a question about critical race theory in our schools. Are you kidding me? We're having a question about how many genders there are. Are you kidding me? The Bible has plenty, and that's one of the reasons that we do what we do because it's not just the other, it's also how now shall we live as Christians in a hostile world. That's why we preach much of what we preach. But obviously, ultimately, as we crash land, as it's, we're now just about out of time, the obvious and first question, most important question, it all begins with this, who is Jesus? He's either the Messiah or He's not. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is, in fact, the Lord. But the tomb was empty, proving that he was who he claimed to be. He is God who became flesh, died for our sins, and rose again. And now he stands before each and every one of us. And we have two options. We can either say, no, thank you, or we can fall on our knees and cry out, my Lord and my God.